Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Zach. I'm Nandini, and today we are thrilled to have Eric Erickson with us. Mr. Erickson is a conservative American blogger who runs the blog The Resurgent and is a radio host on the show Atlanta's Evening News with Eric Erickson. Mr. Erickson was born in Louisiana but spent 10 years of his childhood in Dubai before returning to Mississippi at the age of 15. After attending Mercer University for his undergraduate and law degree, Mr. Erickson practiced law focus on corporate transactions and estates with with side focuses in both election law and criminal defense. Mr. Erickson has served as a member of city council for four years, has been the editor-in-chief and the CEO of the conservative political blog Red State, and was a political contributor on CNN and Fox News. Thanks so much for joining us, Mr. Erickson. Thanks for having me. Um, so we always ask the same question when we start um, all these interviews, and it is, um, has there been an inflection point in your life, um, a time when you've had to make a change or make a pivot, maybe in career or even personal life as well? There have been several <laughs> in my life, as a matter of fact. Um, so I fell into what I do now uh, by accident. Uh, I was actually a CNN contributor. And a local radio show host got arrested in a drug raid, mm. and the local radio station needed someone to fill in for him. They remembered I had been on before to talk about a case I was working on, and so they asked. Uh, a day turned into a week, which turned into three months. I got paid in an expired gift certificate at Outback Steakhouse. <laughs> and uh, while I was doing it, uh, the radio folks at uh, WSB in Atlanta, which is the largest talk radio station in the country, uh, listened, thought it was my show, didn't know any better, and said, Herman Cain's running for president. Do you want his job? I was like, sure. Uh, moved to Atlanta. They, I signed the contract before they found out I didn't actually have a radio show. Mm. Um, it, and along the way, uh, to get even to that point, in the week before Christmas 2006, my wife came home and she, she had this horrible look on her face. Uh, she, we had gone to the beach over um, Labor Day that year, and they thought she had a pulmonary embolism. She went to the hospital in excruciating pain. Mm -hmm. uh, they realized it was her gallbladder, but they had scanned her lungs and said, if it's not this, it's that. And they said, well, you got some spots there. They don't look like they're a big deal. Come back. And she came back and we went to the beach. She wound up having emergency gallbladder surgery while we were at the beach and didn't think anything of it until the week before Christmas, 2006. Uh, I had just gotten on the phone with two of my business partners. I was then running a website called Red State, and they were calling to tell me that we were out of money and I needed to go find a new job. And my wife walked in the door to tell me that she had to go to the hospital. They found a blood clot in her jugular vein, which you don't get blood clots yeah. in your jugular vein. Not a good thing. So she went to the hospital, and they told her they thought she had a form of cancer that would be consistent with the spots in her lungs. And so they did a, a biopsy. And gosh, I'll never remember it. It's one of those scenes, you know, some people say like on 9-11, if you listen to all the stories, it's how clear the day was. On this day, it was a dark and gloomy, rainy, stormy day. And you get called to an office no bigger than the room we're in with no windows, maybe even smaller than this. There's a Bible and a phone. And they told me my wife had six months to live. And there was an all-call on the PA system. There had been a terrible wreck. The doctors had to leave, and I got to be the one to tell my wife she was dying. Um, well, thankfully, it was a misdiagnosis. Uh, we found out uh, 24 hours later it was a misdiagnosis. Uh, she now actually does the, the cancer that they thought she had. Uh, she has something like it now. She's one of 35 people in the world with a very rare form of lung cancer. Uh, there's no cure for it, um, but they can keep it in remission for now. And yet yeah, these little incidents along the way have been 
life-changing. Um, and, and they impact professionally and, and personally. The how, how do I want to raise my kids? Uh, what happens if I am a single parent? Um, the questions that you shouldn't have to ask yourself. Um, at the time that this happened uh, in 2006, I would have been 30-some-odd years old, uh, just at, I think, 30, 31 years old. And these things kind of, they, they definitely shape your life and make you realize there are some things more important than others. Hmm. Let's just get real heavy right yeah, out of the gate. Yeah, well, that, that was, that certainly was. <laughs> certainly, well, one, one moment more joyful than the other. And we'll circle back, I think, to your book, which you wrote out of mm-hmm. the tragedy um, and also something that happened to you. Is that right? right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we'll, we'll, uh, maybe we'll end on that, you know. Um, but when you were um, invited to do the radio show in Atlanta, what was it about, you, do you think your radio show that, or your radio presence that was so attractive? Because um, it seemed like it just happened really quickly. It, it really did happen quickly. It, it was a, a complete surprise to me. And what I have learned is, is so my radio show right now is two hours. It's, it's drive time. When it started, it was three. Um, real hard to do three hours during drive time in Atlanta. We stop every six minutes for traffic. Mm. And just being kind of an authentic voice on radio, there are a lot of people who do, particularly in conservative talk space, there are a lot of people who do an impression of Rush Limbaugh. And it's they're not being themselves; they're being Rush Limbaugh. Um, I'm a fat, middle-aged white guy, and and talk about that on the radio. Uh, talk about my kids. Uh, talk about life. Particularly talk about faith. Uh, something I'll, I'll talk about here is just uh, the inner workings of faith and politics and life, and how there's an order to those things. So the motto for the resurgent, your news publication, is committed to freedom, faith, and family. What does that commitment look like for you? It, as a conservative and as a Christian, it has a lot to do with uh, being willing to hold my own side accountable, uh, being willing to speak up. In, in 2016, for example, I, I did not support President Trump's election as a not just a conservative Republican, but a one-time elected Republican. I said I couldn't support him. Uh, I couldn't support him I was, because of my faith or and my values. I didn't think he was a conservative. We wound up having uh, people show up at our house to threaten us. Uh, we had people threaten me at work. Uh, my kids were chased through a grocery store by a man yelling at them that I was going to destroy the country. And it was one of those convictional things, though. Uh, so being able to hold my own side accountable. But then also more and more, particularly in, in the 21st century now with the rise of social media, more and more I'm mindful of the fact there are a lot of people who they don't feel like they have a voice. And a lot of people who feel like they can't say the things they believe. Uh, it'll get them into trouble. And so a lot of what I do is trying to reflect what I think my audience believes, uh, so long as I also believe it, and being a voice for people who can't. Um, my job that, that I view on radio is somewhat different from writing in that the number one job of someone on radio is to keep people entertained. Uh, you're stuck in your car. You're mad at the guy in front of you for going too slow who can't turn his blinker off, and you need somebody to make you laugh or think about something to get your mind off of it. But even along those lines, uh, I think I serve a role in telling people what I think. You don't have to agree with what I think, uh, but I'll tell you what I think and hopefully make it entertaining enough for you on your way home that you ignore that you're trying to go into road rage. Now, you've said before that you certainly suffered for not supporting the president, um, that your income dropped and that you lost listeners. Um, And yet, and and your particular brand of conservatism is the cultural conservatism, conservatism, um, and the sort of faith based conservatism. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, you think? yeah, definitely. I I would call myself more between fiscal and social conservative okay. on both fronts. But 
Yeah, I mean, there was definitely uh, repercussions for not supporting the president. Actually, my radio listenership went up. Uh, everything mm. else declined, but that went up. Yeah. Um, today, though, still 75% of white evangelicals support the president. Um, do you think that there, or what do you see as the future of the social conservatism, in, at least in the Republican Party, um, and also in the conservative movement? And maybe you could, for listeners, make the distinction between those two things yeah. as well. Um, so, you know, the conservative movement, I'm deeply disappointed in how quickly people who make money on conservatism are willing to abandon their convictions to keep making money. Uh, that is the conservative movement. Uh, people who view themselves as conservative, who uh, support traditional values and smaller government. Um, I tell people all the time I'm a conservative because I'm a uh, Christian. I think we're all sinners and I want as few in charge of me as possible. And that kind of, in a nutshell, captures why I'm a conservative. Um, I... I understand the reason a lot of conservatives support the president. Uh, given the alternatives in, in the political space uh, for 2020, I may wind up having to support him myself. Um, there, there don't seem to be any alternatives who share my values as opposed to being hostile to my values. And I, I understand the people who wanted to stand up for the president. There was a vacancy on the Supreme Court. They wanted to get that taken care of. Um, but what I can't rationalize, what I can't, what I can't condone and what actually really makes me angry are the people who are willing to look at the president and, and not say, yeah, this guy's a moral cretin, but everybody else is too, and he's going to deliver policy-wise what I like compared to the other, so i got to go with him. But the people who just completely apologize for his behavior, the Access Hollywood tape suddenly didn't matter. This behavior with women suddenly didn't matter. And, oh, my gosh, he's the second coming of Cyrus in the Old Testament and and preachers who were twisting scripture in order to uh, condone. In fact, I, I had a debate with the national religious broadcasters, and one of the people in this debate with me actually was quoting a passage of scripture, and I, I'm in seminary and had just studied that passage in the class I was in, and was like, wait a second, you've completely taken this passage out of context, and she was livid with me for pointing it out, but she had completely taken it out of context. So uh, speaking of conservatism and religion as a whole, you're currently working on your Ph.D. in theology? I am, and I go back and forth whether I should have stuck with my master's. So I have a law degree in, yeah. in addition to everything else, and so I have the hours with some of the master's classes I've taken to get into the Ph.D. program. And mm -hmm. it, it, the Ph.D. I'm working on is on cultural theology, how does a Christian engage the world around them, uh, but part of me really thinks I need to rein it back in and take the master's classes first. I, I think I've bitten off more than I can chew right now with my schedule. So you went to law school, you've held office, now you're working on getting your master's, your PhD in theology. Uh, where where do you see the intersection of like politics and religion specifically with like what you've studied and what you've seen like in office? There's a strange intersection in the current culture where a lot of Christians particularly behave like they can be a Christian for an hour on Sunday and then a, a flag-waving member of the Republican Party uh, the rest of the week. And having voices out there who point out that you, one has to define the other. You're either going to have your religion conform to politics or your politics conform to your religion. Mm -hmm. And it, it's actually a space I'm fascinated in and also deeply disappointed in seeing some of the people I've respected over the years decide that their their religion can conform to their politics instead of the other way around. Mm -hmm. Interesting. What was the... Well, you, you made your name as a conservative firebrand, especially in the Tea Party movement, um, really helped put up some um, prominent... Um, politicians now, Nikki Haley, 
um, Ted Cruz. That was sort of, it seemed more that that was um, in favor of, or uh, promoting Republicans and um, fighting against Democrats. But now you've said your main responsibility or main interest is calling out your own side. Well, it, I, I would reconcile them and say in, in 2006, 8, 10, 12, and 14, it was more finding Republican candidates to challenge incumbents within the Republican Party. Yeah. Uh, Ted Cruz challenging the lieutenant governor in Texas. Um, Mike Lee in Utah, actually, I nearly lost my job over supporting him against the incumbent Republican senator. Uh, Marco Rubio against Charlie Crist, then the Republican governor in Florida, and Nikki Haley against the Republican establishment in South Carolina on this real belief that the outsiders uh, who had not been in the party were not corrupted by the party and so should be the ones to fix the party. And frankly, it was a, there was a level of irony in this white guy from the South backing all the people who aren't the white men. Uh, whether it's Nikki Haley or Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz or Mia Love or Tim Scott or uh, you name it. Uh, it seemed like the Republican establishment really had become an institution of good old boys who were completely out of ideas. Um, and then we got Trump. <laughs> so where do you think – so what do you think the future of the Republican Party is? Uh, I think it, it's largely a zombie movement at this point uh, willing to be captured by the next cult, next cult of personality. Uh, I, I was a – a, a elected Republican councilman. I was one of two on a city council of 15 in Georgia, the only partisan city council for that matter in Georgia. Uh, and I can't tell you what the Republican or Democratic position on trash collection was, but I could tell you the conservative versus the liberal position on, on trash collection, uh, whether or not to privatize or not. Uh, more and more, I don't know what the Republican Party stands for other than what Donald Trump says. We, we have a party platform. And it outlines specifics, uh, and I like those specifics, but the party as practiced is not the party as written. I want to ask you about uh, more about sort of public figures' personal conduct, because that's definitely been um, something Americans have had to think about um, probably throughout the years, but also really since um, – or the past few years – um, you said that you were upset about the conservative movement overlooking things like the Access Hollywood tape, um, but – Recently, and yeah, recently you've t asked, you've said that there should be room for grace for public officials who have done things, you know, 20, 30 years right. ago. Can you walk us through um, maybe the complexity of the argument or yeah. um, sort of what you're, what you think, or how you think society should treat politicians who are public figures, are important figures, mm -hmm. and often have complicated pasts? Yeah, well, you know, we're all sinners. Uh, every single one of us has done things we're not proud of, uh, myself included. Uh, mine have gotten written about on the front page of the New York Times. And I think that every single person has done something they regret. And if you can show that the person is not the person they were then, there's no reason to bind them to what they did then. Uh, the president with the Access Hollywood tape, it wasn't that old. Uh, and even even if we said, OK, it was a decade old, the problem was the president's behavior clearly had not changed. He had not grown up. But what made that worse, actually, were the number of people who came out and said, oh, no, it doesn't matter. Uh, it, it's that's but Gorsuch, uh, but Scalia at the time, um, it, willing to wipe all of that away. Uh, there was no apology. You know, I, I, I've told people I've I've done a lot of things I regret. I have apologized for a number of things very publicly. Uh, some were nearly career-ending, dumb things I've done in the past. And I apologize, sincerely apologize. The president has actually said repeatedly on stage, before Christian audiences no less, that he's never felt the need to repent. 
and I, I have a real hard time with Christians rallying morally around someone. I understand that there are two sides. They're both deeply flawed. This guy aligns with me more than the other on politics. But to excuse it is problematic. At the same time, if we don't look at people, and the president's an exception because he's never felt the need to apologize for anything in his own words, he said that. When there are politicians who come out and said, yeah, that was 35 years ago, Ralph Northam, for example. He should probably resign for a stupid press conference. But a, a picture that was 35 years ago, are we going to a man who's been elected for a decade? And I disagree with him on everything. But he's been elected for a decade. There's never been an accusation of racism. There's never been a bias uh, that he's shown towards people of, of any ethnicity or race. Are we going to define him by a yearbook picture 35 years ago or by what he's done since then? And since then, he's helped the poor. He's he's traveled the world being a, a free physician in, in countries that don't have doctors. He's been a politician who I disagree with on everything, but good for his party. If we take away the incentive to apologize and the incentive to be defined by the here and now as opposed to 35 years ago, what we're doing is we're taking away the incentive for anyone to ever grow up, uh, for anyone to ever move beyond the worst thing they've done. If we take away the willingness to accept a real apology – uh, we're taking away anyone's need to apologize. And in fact, I would argue it probably his ridiculous press conference was because of that. Uh, what would an apology have gotten him other than uh, more recognition that, yes, this was him 35 years ago. We've got to ruin him as opposed to, OK, he apologized for something that happened three and a half decades ago for which there are no no one was physically injured or mentally injured by that. Um, let's move on and see if he can actually be the person we think he has been in the last decade. Interesting. So the last question we ask all of our guests is, what is your personal definition of success and how would you help students define success for themselves? First of all, I, I feel I should apologize. I'm a radio show host, so I tend to ramble. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to make this as succinct well, this is as a possible. Radio show. Well, yeah, <laughs> there, there you go. Uh, it is a podcast. We've got bandwidth to spare. Uh, what it is not first is a measure of your followers, your likes on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook um, that measures your value based on what others think of you. Um, I would say the measure of success in life is uh, do you feel fulfilled? And I, Martin Luther King has said so many wonderful things. And has so many great speeches, but my his speech that I think doesn't get enough attention and is my favorite is his street sweeper speech. That just be the best streets. If God has ordained you a street sweeper, be the best street sweeper you can. If you're a bush, be the greatest bush there ever was, and if you're a tree, cast the greatest shadow you can. Uh, and that's the measure of success is independent for each person, but it all I think comes down to. Are you fulfilled in life? And that fulfillment can't come from what other people feel about you. It's got to come from within. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But um, to all our listeners out there, remember to stay hungry. <laughs>